0: Good job. Camel train. Good job, guys. Wasn't a camel train, but it'll do, I guess. You can't beat that camel train song. One of my fondest memories forgot what it was for a second there. (laughs) One of my fondest memories as a kid growing up was going to the Stark County Fair. Now, I guess every city has a fair, a county fair. I know we have a state fair. I've never been to the state fair. I think we were, I think we it was there maybe once, years ago. But we never missed going to the Stark County Fair. And I, as a kid growing up, I've got pictures of the, all the farm tractors there and the military had stuff there. And I got pictures of me as a little kid firing a 50, sitting behind a 50 caliber machine gun, a tank. But it was a fun time. The best part of going to the fair was going through these long buildings where all the people who wanted to sell you something were lined up. And everybody went through there because they always had giveaways that they gave you. Rulers, bags, you know, um, little trinket things that you could use that they would give out. Pens were really popular. And my mom and dad used to love going down through there. We'd come out with big bags of stuff that were giveaways. I grew up... Like most people, really enjoy in freebies. Yeah, giveaways. One of the one of the beauties of being 65 is the fact that I can go through the drive-through McDonald's and order a small coffee black for a senior citizen and get it for 64 cents instead of 92 cents. That may not mean much to you, but it means a lot to me. I like giveaways. I say all that because today in our service there's going to be a lot of giveaways. So get your pencil, get your notebook ready. <clears throat> There's going to be a lot of things that you probably won't have time to put them in now. But when you get into a passage like this in Proverbs, <clears throat> things start coming. In fact, we've got to take a quite a lengthy passage here. And uh, we want to look at it. And there are going to be a lot of freebies today. A lot of things that I'm going to throw out to you <clears throat> that you'll want to go back in time and put in your Bible so you have it. But first, let's talk about last week and kind of put it all together. Last week in the book of Proverbs, we saw a number of really good principles. Uh, We looked at the concept of New Jerusalem and how that the New Jerusalem uh, uh, as a city, the bride, and what she represents and means to us. And the Bible talked about somebody despising their mother. We went through and put that into a biblical context for you. We saw the great concept of the idea that people get through the devil by being deceived, that our folly, the sin in our life, we actually think that it becomes our joy in life. And we talked about the short-term and the long-term effects of that. I showed you in relation to all of that, the seven things in the Bible that they rejoice over and make merry over in heaven. And I was talking about the fact that you and I, As God's people, many times we rejoice in things that they care nothing about in heaven. And we as God's people who should know the Bible never really rejoice in the things that they rejoice of in heaven. So I gave you those seven things. Then, I think you got a lot of freebies last week now that I think about it. Then, I gave you 12 new things in the Bible that are above the sun. I showed you the book of Ecclesiastes, how that, that book is is, 1-9 is, uh, everything in that book is under the sun on planet Earth. And I showed you how that it's all vanity. And I said, you know, that there's nothing new here. If you really want something new and exciting, you got to give above the sun. So I took you through the 12 things in the Bible that are above that are new. I talked about, the Bible talks about being, uh, being safe in a multitude of counselors. And I showed you how that was not your friends. And there's a lot of people, you know, I'll get people that call me after they call 28 people to find out what they should do, and then they call me. And I always tell them just to do what the other 28 people told them to do. They're not looking for an answer. They're looking for something that they can justify what they want to do. Now, the greatest counselors you'll ever have, multitude of counselors, are the 66 books of your Bible written by 38 or 39 different men who who give you all the counsel that you need. And We talked about that. We talked about the time in your life where you become established in the Word of God. It's value to God, your establishment in the Word of God. Knowing what you know, knowing why you believe what you believe, how valuable that is to God, but not only to God, but also to me and our church here, to our church and to you, uh, being established in the things of God. We talked about God using you at a point in your life and the Bible talks about due season and I showed you the book of Nehemiah, how the Nehemiah was used of God and how God created the circumstances in that book of Nehemiah. The only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned and it shows God behind the scenes and it shows what your life and my life should be because Nehemiah is a picture of the, of the Laodicean church period in a doctrinal aspect and it shows you that you and I should be God's man, to be in the right person, at the right place, in the right time, that God can use us the way He wants. And then we talked about how that when the truth of the Word of God or none of these things are in your life, how the Bible says that a man, a woman is destitute. Absolutely uh, no value in their life or anything, and their life is a mess and they're miserable. Now today... We want to look at our next set of verses and principles, add right to what we looked at last week. And as I said, there's going to be a lot of free things here today that you want to pick up and get. But let me begin to read in Proverbs chapter 15, verses 24 through 29. Here's what it says. The way of life is above to the wise, that he may depart from hell beneath. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the border of the widow. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. The heart of the righteous studieth the answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. Nate, would you ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me, please? We ask you that you give Bob the words to say and give us an open mind and an open heart that we can receive in your word and take it and further your ministry and do things that you want us to do and more importantly, Lord, to live a life that's glorified to you. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. Now, you would look at a passage like this, and I know I did for years and years and years, and all you'd see was the passage. And to many people, when I read it, (coughs) I'm sure some people scratch their head and say, well, you know, what are we going to get out of this today? I mean, it looks like it's just a running account of some things that are obviously true in life, but but where do we go beyond what we see here? And I, I want us to take and look and understand how the Bible is a living book. You know, the, the Bible is a book that it 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 stays current with any time period in history. And the Bible is alive, and these verses are alive, and as you Uh, take it to the Holy Spirit of God and allow Him to illuminate, you're going to see some things. It's in these today that, as always, I want you to really get some things out of this, but I want you to get all those freebies that you can just put in there that will help you down the line someplace. Now, let's look at verse 24. Now, we know the doctrine of the book of Proverbs will be about the nation of Israel. We know that, historically, uh, Israel was a nation of God that had some issues. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 4 that Israel was God's son in a corporate sense as a nation. So we find that much of this is, is written to Israel as God's son, of they need to get their act together. But we also understand that doctrinally that it's a it's a it's an application to something in the future. Israel going to go through uh, the great tribulation period, the greatest tribulation Time on Earth yet that no man has seen the likes of, but Israel is going to have to go through that period, and going through that, they're going to be brought back to to God. So we know that that's true. We also know that inspirationally, all this applies somehow to you and me, because you and I are God's son also. So we want to keep that in mind, and it was Israel as God's son, uh, we want to, it'll put the context of many of these verses in the tribulation period. And I want to show you back and forth today, I want you to be able to glean from this, and, and, and passages like this are invaluable when you can get the, uh, the, the, the information and, and get it in such a way that you can get a large portion of it. So, verse 24 says, the way of life is above to the wise, that he may depart from hell beneath. Now, verse 24 is saying that there's a wise man here and he departs from hell beneath and gets to a life somewhere that's above. Now, I, I must confess to you that if you just read that, some, most people would be scratching their head. But it, it's, it's very clear once you understand the whole realm of the Word of God. And as you find it in verse 24 in the Proverbs, this will be a reference, and here's your first freebie. This will be a reference to the Old Testament saint that would be found in Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament and uh, they get set free at the crucifixion of Christ. So you want to get that and understand it. Primarily, this is what he's talking about in a historical application and also a doctrinal application. You know, most people make a terrible mistake when it comes to um, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, most Bible teachers today, most pastors, uh, they know so little about the Bible that they actually believe that the Uh, way of salvation in the Old Testament was exactly like it is in the New Testament. And of course, that's ludicrous, that nothing could be farther from the truth. Now, I understand that in any dispensation of the Bible where you have salvation, grace and uh, and faith are always the key. Uh, I'm not telling you that there was not grace and faith in the operation of the Old Testament. Uh, Certainly there was. But the difference is the fact that in the Old Testament, you're dealing with a literal nation of people. All the promises are literal. We know it as the kingdom of heaven. In the New Testament, we're dealing with the body of Christ in a spiritual realm called the spiritual kingdom of, of God. We know that the promises to Israel were literal, but the promises to you and me are, are spiritual. One of the great illustrations of that is simply that in the Old Testament, they literally fought nations that was against God, and against them, and kill them and wipe them out. We don't do that today in Christianity, because the Bible tells us, and here's a great point, that our battle is a spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, the Bible says. They did in the Old Testament. So you begin to realize that when God was dealing with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament uh, on their salvation, it's different than yours and mine. And the reason why I know it's different than mine is because when they died, they didn't go to the same place that we go when we die. The book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a great book. Here again, most people completely misunderstand the book of Hebrews. They want to make it Hebrew Christians. There is no such animal as a Hebrew Christian. They want to say, well, that book was written to Christians that were Hebrews or Hebrews that were Christian. And you even find groups today that that call themselves, you know, uh, Hebrew Christians, where they have a Jewish nature, background. Maybe they're born Jew, but they're now a Christian, so they want to present both sides of the coin, so they call themselves Jewish Christians or Hebrew Christians. The Bible says, and you know what? I keep hating to bring up the Bible. I just, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I just went along with everything. But the Bible says that in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. If you're saved this morning, I don't care if you're Jewish in your ancestry. I don't care what it is. The moment you become a new creature in Christ Jesus, you're now a Christian. Amen. Simple as that. But we see that a lot of confusion on it today. The book of Hebrews is a book that really compares the Old Testament from the New Testament and shows you that the New Testament is better. One of the things he does is he compares the priesthood. This gets a lot of people messed up. He shows that the Old Testament priesthood was a literal priesthood under Aaron, the Levites. But he shows you that the New Testament priesthood is one after the order of Melchizedek, which is Christ's priesthood, which is a spiritually eternal priesthood. And he says and shows you that that this one in the New Testament that you and I have is better than the one. I think you find the word better like 14, 15, 16 times in the book of Proverbs. We talk about the angels and Christ. He compares the angels to Christ, and he comes out showing you that Christ is better than the angels. And he goes through every aspect. He goes through the promises, and he says, you know what? The promises in the Old Testament were good. But the promises in the New Testament are better. You know why? Because they're spiritual. And then by the time he gets to chapter 8 and 9, he goes through and lays out and compares the sacrifices. And he compares the sacrifices of the blood of bulls and goats versus the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know what he says? The sacrifice of Christ is better. You know why? Because the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away your sin. Because the salvation of the Old Testament is different than the salvation of the New Testament. They couldn't go to heaven. There's a lot of technical reasons for that. and We won't get into that today. But suffice it to say that, that there's a difference between the two. And so in the Old Testament, when they died, they couldn't go to heaven. Psalm chapter 16, verse 3, another freebie for you, talks about somebody who, the saints that are in the earth. The greatest example of this would be Luke chapter 16 when we talk about Abraham's bosom. And you know the story. The Bible says there was a rich man who fared sumptuously every day. And there's the beggar Lazarus who laid at his gate full of sores. And and, uh, the rich man had everything. Lazarus had nothing. But in reality, the rich man had nothing and Lazarus had everything. There's a great little sermon right there. And the Bible says in in time they died. They both died. And the Bible says that... (coughs) Abraham, uh, uh, Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And then it says that the rich man also died and in hell lift up his eyes. And what takes place in the next verses of Luke chapter 16 is a conversation between the rich man and Lazarus. They're in the same place. But the rich man is in hell in torment. Lazarus is comforted on the other side. And it's the greatest story in the Bible that shows you that in the Old Testament, Abraham's bosom had two compartments to it. And this is a little freebie for you that it throws many people off. The word hell, when you find the word hell in the Bible, the word hell, as we talk about it today, is used for both compartments. We think of it as as the... as just the side where it's in torment. And that may be true, but the correct biblical term, the word hell, talks about both compartments, the one the rich man was in and the one which Lazarus was in. So in the Old Testament, when a, when a man, righteous saint, died, he went to Abraham's bosom. When an unrighteous man died, he went to hell. And, of course, they're in the same compartment, and the Bible says they're in the center of the earth. When Christ died on the cross, he gets the keys, the Bible says in Revelation chapter one, verse 18. talked about this Thursday night. He gets the keys to death and hell. Up to that point, the devil had the keys. That's the technical reason why nobody could go to heaven. The devil had the keys of death and hell, and when you go over to Luke Matthew chapter 16, you find that hell has gates, so there has to be a key to open the gate. And you find in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints are locked up in the prison called captive, captive of death. And the devil has the key to death. So nobody could ever resurrect and and go to heaven. Now, we know that all changed when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10, he says, Wherefore, he saith, when he, talking about Christ, ascended up on high. He led captivity captive. That's the Old Testament saints that were in Abraham's bosom that when he went up, he took them with him. Now watch. Verse 9 in parentheses. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first. Ah, here it comes into the lower parts of the earth. You see, once he come out of that tomb, he goes down into Abraham's bosom and he preaches down there, the Bible says. And then he tells the Old Testament saints. I don't know what he tells them. And the message is not given. But bottom line is, he leads them out. They once were captivity of death. Now he has the keys of death and hell. The devil is defeated. And he leads them from the heart of the earth up to heaven. This is what Proverbs chapter 15, 24 is talking about. He delivers them that were subject to the bondage of death. He takes them out. When Christ uh, uh, takes death and captures death, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, he now has the keys. He opens up those gates and he leads them out. Another little freebie for you here, and I'm not going to give them to you today, but in the Bible, you'll find there are seven keys. It's a tremendous little study. This is just one of them, the keys to death hell. There are seven keys in your Bible that are very important. Now, that's the doctrinal application, historical application. Now, the inspirational application, it's for you and for me. When you and I got saved, we went from death to life. We went from hell beneath to heaven above. Most people don't understand this. Most unsaved people don't get it at all, but most of God's people don't get it. As an unsaved man or woman, before you and I got saved, the Bible says that you and I were dead in trespasses of sin, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 36, that when we were unsaved, that the, that, the, that the wrath of God was already on us. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you, that when you and I were in an unsaved state, as far as God's concerned, we were already in hell, in His mind. Now, I'm saved this morning, and I'm already in God's mind, seated in heavenly places. But when you were lost, when I was lost in God's mind, The wrath of God's condemnation was already on us and in God's mind you and I were in hell with a gate shut, key locked, lock key lost and the gate rusted shut and was not going to get out until Jesus came down and opened that gate. And so you and I in that sense when I got saved I departed in God's mind from hell beneath and now i am risen above and I'm seated on the right hand with Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19, now that I'm saved, my citizenship. This is why even though I may be an American by birth, the moment I got saved, or you may be Jewish by birth or whatever you are by birth, the moment you got saved, God changed your citizenship. And now you're in heaven. A citizen of heaven. And when you understand that, you'll realize that uh, now, like I said last week, this is why our affection should be on things above, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Ephesians 2, 6, as I said a moment ago, now you and I are seated in heavenly places. Our citizenship is up there. Now look at verse 25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the border of of the widow, Now, this is another freebie for you here, and you want to get this down. Now, doctrinally, the house of the proud will be the destruction of the Antichrist at the second coming of Christ. That will always, when you find that in the Bible, where it's talking about the house of the proud or the proud, always want to look at the context. Ninety percent of the time, it will be dealing with the destruction of the Antichrist as it is here. Now, the last part of that verse is dealing with the establishment of the borders, it says there. But he will establish the border of the widow. Now, that's very important. That will be a reference to the nation of Israel. Right now, (coughs) Israel has just a fingernail hold on the land grant that was promised to her when God met with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. If you would have a map up here, you would see that the original land grant goes all the way from Egypt all the way over to Ur, which is modern-day uh, Baghdad, and then all the way up to the north to Mount Ararat. And that's an interesting little thing. That's why God chose Mount Ararat <coughs> to put Moses, uh, Moses, put Noah uh, where the ark landed. It's right there in southern Turkey. And when that ark rested on Mount Ararat, those boys came out of that. And Noah came out of that. And when they headed down, you know where they headed? Right down under that land grant that was given to Abraham. It's an incredible study when you go through the whole thing. We don't have time to do that this morning, but suffice it to say again <clears throat> that this is what we're dealing with here. When you go into Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, <clears throat> those will be the eight greatest chapters anywhere in the Bible on the millennial reign of Christ. If you don't have Clarence Larkin's book on dispensational truth, at some sometime pick it up. He, better than anybody I've ever seen in my life, goes through uh, each chapter and details it out uh, in, incredibly. <clears throat> and I took basically everything out of his book and put it into my Bible. <clears throat> I have the charts. I have everything at my fingertips uh, that I have everything that I need there. But my point in this, and in Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 1 through 35, he actually defines for you these borders. He actually uses the word borders and shows you the borders of each tribe. Now, <clears throat> the idea of the concept of a, of a widow here. The borders of the widow. The widow, wherever you find it in the Bible, again, you always want to be careful. That'll usually, not maybe every time, <clears throat> but if not every time directly, probably every time indirectly as a type, uh, it'll be someone uh, who is a picture of the nation of Israel. Someone who is left alone, like a widow would be. Someone who could be taken advantage of, like a widow could be. Uh, someone uh, that can be taken and fooled by the devil. And the widow, where you find it in most cases, will be a re- reference to the destitute situation of the nation of Israel. Israel is illustrated in the Bible as a widow many times throughout the Word of God. Destitute, without any help, defenseless. You'll find in Psalm chapter 68, verse 5, that uh, the Bible says that God is the judge for widows. You're going to find it in Psalm 78, verse 64, where it makes a reference to Israel in the tribulation as a widow. You'll find it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 17, that God not having mercy on the fatherless or the widows, picture of the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. Isaiah 10, 2 is another one, where it talks about that the widows are a prey for the Antichrist. Israel is pictured as a widow because she's defenseless. She has no husband. Her husband is god he 's divorced her, and she 's pretty much on her own in Jeremiah chapter eighteen verse twenty four we see a talk about the destruction and the tribulation connected with being a widow and in Lamentation chapter five, verse three, uh, It says that we are orphans and fatherless, our mother uh, are as widows and again it 's a reference to the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. You want to get these verses down; these are the freebies these are things that <coughs> that probably took me 10 years to understand that you're getting in what? The course of, of an hour and 10, 15 minutes. These are things that are invaluable, that you put them in there, you get them in there, and they denote the context for you. Now look at verse 26. Just moving through here. And I'll have a lot of time to spend on each one of these so I can get through them all, but I don't need to. I just want to give you, so you walk out of here today knowing what you, what you went and saying in your heart, boy, the state fair was never like this. Anyway. Verse twenty-six: The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. Now, the thoughts of the wicked—here again, doctrinally, this will be the antichrist or the devil, however you want to make it. Inspirationally, we know that it's a reference to the devil and his children. John chapter eight, verse forty-four: "Year of your father, the devil." Jesus speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, literal people. And uh, you will see that the uh, the thoughts. Uh, of the wicked that are an abomination to the Lord, they're actually laid out for you. And they're found in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. And the Bible says there that there's six things that God hates, and the seventh makes it an abomination. So these are the thoughts of the wicked that are an abomination. I want you to notice that it's in Proverbs 6, verse 16, and then the Bible says there's six things, clearly giving you 666. Now, we've been through it before. I'll not spend a lot of time on it today, but you're going to find that these six things the Lord hates and the seventh making an abomination is the thoughts you're finding in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 26. Now, when you go back to Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19, you find the first one is a proud look, the second one is a lying tongue, the third one is hands that shed innocent blood, <clears throat> the fourth one is a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Uh, the fifth one is feet swift to mischief. The sixth one is a false witness. And the seventh is discord, showing discord among <coughs> the brethren. Now, <clears throat> inspirationally, from John chapter 8, verse 44, these thoughts of the wicked will also be the thoughts of unsaved men and unsaved women. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes they're also the thoughts of God's people, but that's another message. But the Bible says, John chapter 8, verse 44, that ye are of your father the devil, and then he says, the lust of your father ye shall do. And of course, these are the thoughts that make up the concept of the devil, and which are an abomination, the wicked. Now, I want to show you something here, these seven thoughts, these seven attitudes of heart. They are the devil's mindset. You're going to find in the Bible that you find the mind of, mind of God. You find the mind of the Spirit of God. You find the mind of Christ. You also find the mind of the devil. And I've given you before how Job chapter 40 and 41 are the two greatest chapters in the Old Testament on the outlying of the devil, laying him out. Revelation 12 and 13 would be in the New Testament. But along with that is you have Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, and places like Proverbs fifteen twenty six 26 that kind of lead you where you need to go. Now, what I'm going to show you, one of the most incredible things that God ever gave me, and gave me this many, 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 many years ago, I want to show you the mindset that the devil has that finds and spans history. It's one of the most amazing things when you take these seven things and you can actually put them down in history. The first thing it says in verse 17 is a proud look. You know that was the first sin in the Bible? You know that takes it right back to the beginning in Genesis 1-1 where Ezekiel uh, 28 and Isaiah 14 tells us that, that Lucifer was risen up by pride. And the first sin in the Bible you find is the first one listed here that starts the beginning of your Bible. That the devil had a proud, the, the Lucifer had a proud look. And when he fell, he became proud. The devil. The second one in verse 17 is a lying tongue. That'll be Genesis chapter 3. This is your first lie in the Bible. The first lie in the Bible is when the devil, the serpent, went to Eve and said, Yea, hath God said, and then he changed what God said and he lied about it. John chapter eight verse forty, father forty four says, "You have your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers you will do." What's the next part of the verse? He was a what? A liar from the beginning. There it is. Verse seventeen, number three, hands that shed innocent blood. That's Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel. First murder in the Bible. John chapter 8, verse 44 says, You of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you do. He was a a murderer from the beginning. That's Genesis chapter 4. (laughs) Verse 18 says, Wicked imaginations, a heart. Wicked imaginations, a heart that devises wicked imaginations. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, at the time of Noah, the Bible says the thoughts of man's heart and his imagination was only evil continually. There it is walking right through the Bible with these six things. That'll take us from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, right up through Moses when they come out of Egypt. (coughs) Verse 18, the fifth one is feet swift running to mischief. That'll be Israel under the law, waiting no time for the opportunity once they come out of Egypt. How long was it before they raised up a golden calf? The study of the nation of Israel from Exodus chapter 12 up to the captivity, is nothing more than them taking every opportunity to run swiftly to do mischief against God. There it is. And the devil's behind it. Verse 19, number 6, false witness. That'll bring us up to the crucifixion, where the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders made false accusations against the Lord Jesus Christ and crucified him, all false witnesses. The seventh one, verse 19, he that still a discord among the brethren, that puts us right up in the church age. That is God's people's number one sin today, not being able to keep your mouth shut instead of praying for somebody, you talk about somebody. If there's one great sin, that is the absolute paramount sin of the body of Christ today that is the abomination for God. It's showing discord among the brethren. Pastor said one time, I'd like to be able to stop all that in my church. And I said, well, you do. You'd have to, wouldn't have a church. He said, what do you mean? I said, you'd have to kill everybody because that's the only way you're going to stop it. These things run through the span of history. They're recorded for you. In, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, and lo and behold, you find them in Proverbs 15, 26, the thoughts of the wicked, are an abomination to the Lord, laid out throughout the Bible, quite incredible. Told you there's going to be some freebies today. Now look at the last part of verse 26. But the words of the pure are pleasant words. That'll be the Word of God, God's pure Word. One of the greatest passages in all of the Bible on the purity of the Word of God, and it is an incredible two verses, is Psalms 12, verses 6 and 7. If you don't have them marked in your Bible, you certainly need to have them marked. And here's some more freebies for you to put along with that one. It says in Psalms 12, verse 6 and 7, "...the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times." Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. You know, one of the things that I did years ago when I began to get into the Bible and I knew it had to be done is, is uh, I, I, not only did I study church history, but I again began to study the history of everything. Because I realized that everything will go, I don't care what it is, everything will go back to, to the Bible. And I don't care, I started studying architecture you go to Europe, you'll find that the buildings in Europe uh, will show you exactly, whenever a year it was built, will show you exactly where they're at with the Word of God. It's true in our own country. You go to Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was built in a time where they still believed the King James Bible was the Word of God and they still loved and feared God. So you know how you know that? Because every government building there will have hundreds of Bible verses on them. Nobody believes them today. It's an interesting study. Art is another one. Music is another incredible one. I mean, I don't care what it is. And certainly one of the things that I began to, to look at was the, the history of the King James Bible and the, and the history of languages. You know, the King James Bible, the book that you hold in your hand today, most of you, um, is written in the purest English of the time frame of the English language which spans between 1600 to 1700. You're going to find that all languages go through a, a process. They start out, like English started out, around 6700 A.D. Very gibberish. And it moved through a process that it came to the apex around 1600 or 1700 when it was at its purest form. And then it began to degenerate as man began to generate from the Bible. And today the English language is a cesspool. And it's a mess. Dr. William Lloyd Phelps, who's professor of English literature at Yale University in 1900, he wrote a book called Reading the Bible, published by Macmillan House in New York. And on page 10, 12, uh, 11, 12, and thir- 10 11, 12, and 13, he makes some incredible statements. And one of the things he says is that the King James 1611 was the most important and influential book in English literature. No English in the world is equal to the form of English found in an authorized 1611. He says, if the original text was inspired or not, I don't know. But I have never had any doubt of the divine inspiration of the A.V. 1611. And he was one of the greatest minds on the English language in his day. A study of the English language, English language, starts way back with the Anglo-Saxon. The word Anglo, we get the word England, English, from that word. It's part of the western branch of the Germanic uh, tribes and Germanic languages back in that time period. English language will go, when you study it, through three basic periods of development. A development that leads to English as its most perfect form, as Dr. Phelps was talking about in 1900. Today, English language is the universal language of the world. Most people don't know it. The people, many people don't agree with it, but it doesn't matter to me. There's only been three universal languages down in history that the Bible was written in. When, when In the Old Testament, when God was dealing with the nation of Israel, the universal language was Hebrew. Now, from a, from a scholarly standpoint in universities, they would disagree with that, and they would be right. From a world standpoint, the greatest universal language was never Hebrew. But you gotta get out of the world standard and you gotta get it looking from what God's standard was. God didn't care about the Amalekites, he didn't care about any other the nation, the Egyptians, they're all dead languages. God looked at his little people down there and established the word of God in Hebrew that in the Old Testament was the universal language. You say, how do you know that? Because there was no Old Testament in any other language. That's how I know that. When the world moved into a Greek-speaking world, God put the New Testament into Greek. And Greek was the universal language of the world for many years. And as the world moved and developed on, English became the universal language of the world. And today, God put His final word in His final form in the English language. But He waited till that language got to the perfect apex of its purest form, because the Bible says that the word of God, the words of the of the pure, are pleasant words, and He wanted to make sure that that pure, perfect book was written in the purest language that it could be have been written in. And it's one of those things where it's just incredible. Bible says in Psalms chapter 12 verse 7 the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth purified seven times. You go to your Bible, here's another freebie. 1st Kings chapter 8 verse 51 tells you that the that the furnace of earth is the world. So God took his book, put it into a form and then through the world system through the persecution, through the hatred of it, through everything that man tried to do to destroy it. You know what he did? He does the same thing with the Word of God that he wants to do with you when you go through the tough times and persecution in your life. He purifies you. But we don't get that. When it says purified seven times, it just has a wild deal that there's seven periods in church history of the New Testament that that book got purified through. You're going to find when it says purified seven times, your King James Bible went through seven editions. The last one being in 1769. But if you have a one out of the Milford or an Oxford, uh, of uh, you have a you have a, a 1769 edition. That was the last one, but it went through 17 editions, not revisions. Editions. You'll find that when you go back in history and English language develops, you'll find that the early Bibles with Wycliffe and Tyndale of the English translations, you'll find that there are seven English Bibles that come through history from Wycliffe and Tyndale all the way back in the 1300s and the eighth one that comes out, the new beginning, a new Bible, the last Bible for the Christians with the King James 16:11 authorized version. Now Texas Receptus, the text that it comes off of, found in seven major languages. That's some Bible you got. That Bible says, "But the words of the pure are pleasant words, the word of God." Now look at verse 27, "He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hath gifts, hateth gifts, excuse me, shall live." Now here again, doctrinally, this will be a reference to the Jews in the tribulation period. And you know, in the first half of the tribulation, the Antichrist comes out with a false peace. He gives favors and concessions and gifts to the Jew. And then because the Jew is out of fellowship with God and greedy, he falls forward, he takes him, and it sets him up for the second half of the tribulation period where the Antichrist tries to wipe him out. You find that in the Bible, listed as a snare or a, a net, wherever you find it in the Bible. You want to watch those words. So doctrinally, that's what you're dealing with. But in a practical application, it simply says that a man who is full of greed will pass that attitude of heart on to his children. And in time, his house will be troubled because they will become worse than he is. I want to give a note to your parents here. And I don't have anybody in mind when I'm saying this, other than maybe myself. But whatever... Whatever fundamental issue that you have in your life that you're not willing to fix, in time it will trouble your house because you will pass that right on to your children no matter what it may be. In this case, it's greed. A great verse to illustrate this is found over here in uh, Proverbs chapter 17. We'll look at it here in a moment. Now, the second part here says, but he that hateth gifts shall live. Doctrinally, again, that is the Jew in the tribulation refusing the offer of the Antichrist knowing that something's not right. Inspirationally, as we find it today, welcome to 21st century politics. Or some officials receiving a gift, a bribe, to do somebody a favor. Everybody understands and knows the corruption in Washington, D.C. It's all about power and money. Whatever a politician says to get elected, he'll never do it after he gets elected. He's not interested in you. I've said it many, many times, and I'm not sure how people can be so stupid. Guy runs for the U.S. Senate. The base salary of a U.S. Senator is $174,000 a year, and he runs a four-year term. But he'll spend $200 million in an election trying to win a job that only pays $174,000 a year for four years. Something fundamentally wrong with that. You know why he's willing to spend $200 million to get a job that only pays $174,000 a year? Because he's going to make money off of bribes. They're called special interest groups in Washington. They're called the lobbyists. People who will pay you money... To get you to put their ideas through Congress and get it passed. A great verse on this is Proverbs 1723, where it says, A wicked man taketh a gift out of his bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. That's exactly what goes on, and that's exactly what the verse is saying. And today, all day long, you can buy you a judge, you can buy you a you can buy you a government contract, you can buy you a senator, buy you a congressman. Why you know some of the waste in, in 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 Washington is unbelievable. It was a while back that the B fifty two bombers the navigator had a little chair that he sat on that moved back and forth where he could navigate the plane, and it came to light that they were paying for the little rubber caps that went on the end of those seats. They were paying a thousand dollars a piece for those. You go to Walmart and get them for twenty eight cents a piece. How does that happen? Somebody's making some money off of it. That's how it happens. And today, all day long, you can buy a congressman. You can buy a senator. We talk about the Clintons and all of those things and how she used the Secretary of Defense, and I don't care one way or the other, and she made friends with these, and they were paying her millions of dollars to speak. That's how it works today. And this is why today that most people in Washington have no credibility with anybody. Now look at verse 28. The heart of the righteous studyeth the answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. Now this is a good one. Now this is a great verse. And I guess if there would be any one verse that would sum up what the Christian life is all about after we get saved, one verse. It's probably this one. When you think about it, you know, the Bible is the greatest answer book in life. Do you know that? You know, when it comes to the Bible, there are no uh, experts, only in their own minds. Everybody likes to portray it as the idea of being a Bible scholar. A Bible scholar is somebody who thinks he knows a lot about the Bible. The more I've studied the Bible, the more I've learned how little I know about the Bible. That's a Bible student. We're all students on different levels when it comes to understanding the Bible, and on whatever level will be the questions that we have. The Bible says the heart of the righteous, study it to answer. If you don't ask why, you'll never never learn anything. I've done a Thursday night Bible study for over 40 years that is based on you getting to ask any question you want to ask about the Bible. I'll get 30, 20, 30 calls a week with people asking questions about the Bible, I have the advantage of opening up to you to meet one-on-one, and usually my week is filled with people coming over. And they ask questions about the Bible. I'll get a phone call from somebody saying, hey, I'm, I'm studying this, and I'm stuck here. What does this do? What does this mean? I mean, stop and think about it. Our whole Christian life is about us asking questions from God about life and the things that we have to deal with. People ask me, why did you teach that that way? Can you explain this to me? Hey, I I see this, but how does this work? I I, I saw this, but I'm not sure where to put it, where it fits in my Bible. People ask the question all the time, what's God's plan for me? You probably have heard somebody preach on the will of God or preach on the plan of God or heard somebody talk about doing something for God, and you probably in your own heart thought to yourself, what's God's plan for me? People ask me all the time, who should I marry when should I marry when should I date I people ask me all the time you know hey I just I'm in discipleship you know and I really want to stay focused on what I'm doing but but you know what I I want to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend too when should I date I actually have people call me on the say people I mean it's kind of ludicrous but I actually have say people call me on the phone and ask the question I mean this is Bible 101. Is it okay to date an unsaved person? I always say back, is it right? if you were at a dance and the devil came up with big horns and a pitchfork and a tail and a red union suit and said, Would you like to dance? Would you dance with him? Well, absolutely not. Then don't mess with an unsaved person. You're dancing with the devil. Kind <laughs> of come see you, Doc I just threw my neck out again. <coughs> When should I get married? I've had people ask me all the time, hey, you know, we're going to have a, should we have a long engagement or a short engagement? I always say a long engagement, about 40 years. (laughs) People ask me, should I take this job? I got an opportunity. Should I take this job? People say, well, how do you find a husband or a wife that's really good? They're all such idiots out there. Easy now. (laughs) How do I deal with this issue? How do I deal with my children? How do I deal with my husband? How do I deal with my wife? How do I deal with my family? I got some real family issues. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to so-and-so? Why can't I ever get the victory over this? You see, our whole life is simply asking questions. But the Bible has the answers to it. And the heart of the righteous, he studies to answer those questions. And some of you, bless your hearts, you study to give other people answers. Like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says that be ready. For any man who asks of the reason, the hope that was in you. you. You studied to give the right answers. And when somebody asks you, you know what to say. But all our lives we simply study the Bible. Oh, I know, we want to learn about God and learn about the history. I get it, but fundamentally, right down to the bedrock, when you go out tomorrow and you've got to face the world, the flesh, and the devil, you know what? We're asking questions about our own survival on planet Earth, planet Earth about the Word of God. Why are things the way they are? When we study the Bible, we learn about God. And when we learn about God, we learn about ourselves. Uh, You know, and and most people don't get this. That is the greatest thing that you could ever do. Because one of the great ways to study in the Bible is contrast. And and, and here again, I get three or four uh, every time I deal with somebody on something. You know, sometimes two or three times a week. People always want to compare their problems with somebody else's problems. They get something that's not right in their life and they'll say, well, so-and-so did it. I've had them say, well, you know, I've tried to deal with them on something, and they'll say, well, you know what? So-and-so had the same deal, and let me tell you something. Rule number one of Christianity, never compare yourself with anybody. You know why? Because you're not them. And let me take it a little down to the basement and help you out a little bit more here. Bottom line is, God is dealing something in their life that he's probably not doing in yours. Their world with God is probably different than yours. Therefore, their circumstances are probably different than yours. I never compare myself to anybody. You should never compare yourself to anybody. You know how you, if you really want to do it, don't do it by comparison. Do it by contrast. Don't compare yourself with somebody else. Contrast who you are with what God said you should be. Don't say, well, I'm going to compare myself with so-and-so, or I'm going to compare myself with this guy or this gal. You know, they, they did it this way, and I, 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 I don't know why. You know, don't do it that way. Here's what you do. You've got an issue in life, something you don't know what the answer is to. Here's what you do. Simply ask yourself this. If Jesus was in the exact same situation that I'm in, what would he do? Don't compare yourself to anybody. Contrast yourself to the Son of God. It's not comparison. It's contrast. Hey, I can always find somebody worse off than me. When I want to justify something I want to do, I always got will. (laughs) I can always find somebody in worse shape than me. I can always find somebody more despicable than me. I can always find up somebody whose situation mirrors mine and I want to compare to that so I can really do what I want to do. But I want to tell you something. When you dump the comparison and you go with the contrast and you contrast what you are to what he is, and just simply ask yourself, okay, I got a decision to make. If Jesus was in the same boat, what would he do? And then you know what? It gets simple. That's what you do. (laughs) Whoever said that Christian life was hard? It's only hard when you're crooked. Contrast versus comparison. You get to know and learn about God. You learn about ourselves, our weaknesses, our issues, our strengths. And then you want to know more. I love questions about the Bible. You know, I always tell you that there's no shortcut to learning the Bible, and that's fundamentally true. But the reason why I like questions about the Bible is because asking questions about the Bible is probably the only legitimate shortcut to learning the Bible there is. Gleaning from somebody who took 20 years to learn something, and you can learn it in a question. I wished I'd have had that when I was growing up. I had to dig it out of the rock myself. Parents always want to make life easier for their kids. I like that, and I appreciate that. Sometimes they can go too far and spoil them to death, and then they get a spoiled brat in the world, and I understand that. But parents always want to make life easier for their kids. I, you know, I, I understand that I'm a spiritual father to many of you. And I must tell you, I like to make your life in getting the Bible easier than it was for me. I like when you ask questions. I think it's the only legitimate way in the whole world where you can get a shortcut to learning the Bible. Ask me something that I can answer and explain to you in five minutes. It probably took me three or four years to grasp. That's an accelerated spiritual growth. And some people would think that there's something wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. That's exactly what God intended to do. He'll always put somebody out there who labored harder than you, worked harder than you, dug in deeper than you, so it will save you some time so you can get to where he wants you to be faster. And there ain't nothing wrong with that. The job is not how much pain did you go through to learn it. The job is what did you do with it once you got it. And the quicker I can get it to you around here, the quicker we'll get some more things done for the Lord. Now look at the last part of that verse. But the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things, poureth like no control. And note the key word here, the heart of the righteous, studied the answer. The key word here is heart, man's spirit. The heart of the righteous has the heart of God. The heart of the wicked has the heart of the world. And in both cases, Bible says in Matthew 12, 34, under the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. One pours out the things of God, the other pours out the wickedness of the world. It's just that simple. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 4, verse 23, that you're to keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it come the issues of life, one way or the other. Now look at verse 29 here. We've got to move through here. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. Now again, doctrinally, another freebie for you. This is a tribulation verse talking about the prayer of the tribulation saints in their darkest hour. They are found all throughout the Bible. Most people just never get that far into the book to be able to see them. But over there in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, it talks about the souls under the altar. And those souls under the altar have been killed in the tribulation, and they're crying out to God and saying, "How long, Lord, How long? How long, How long?" Those are the tribulation prayers that he's talking about here. You'll find them throughout the Bible, typified many times in Psalms by David and what he's going through in his struggles As David is a type of a nation of Israel going through the tribulation period. So you'll find that in Psalms 20, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, 25, 28, 29, Psalms 31, Psalm 35, Psalm 40, Psalm 59, on and on it goes. And it will all be like this. Hear my cry, O Lord. I cried unto my God. Hear me, O Lord, wherever you find those or something like that. You've got a tribulation prayer that he's talking about here. That he heareth the prayer of the righteous. Now it goes on and says here, doctrinally, first part of that verse, the Lord is far from the wicked. That'll be the Antichrist and his crowd. That goes without saying. But in a practical sense, this is one of the great verses to show you that God doesn't recognize the prayers of an unsaved man or an unsaved woman. He hears the prayers, but he doesn't recognize the prayers, other than the prayer of salvation. Today, in just about all the great religions of the world, the blessings, the prayers, and across this city, and across this country, and across the world, all the prayer is simply a waste of time. Because God doesn't hear anybody but his own children. And I say again, John 8, 44, you have your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and a father of it. Two spiritual families in this world. John chapter 9, verse 31 says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. Now I have had guys dispute this and they'd say to me well you know what well, I was an unsaved man I was praying to God one time in a bad situation and God got me out of it like that proves that God heard his prayer when the truth of the matter is he probably had a great praying grandmother or a mama praying for him at that particular point in time or somebody else praying for him and God honored that prayer Bible's very clear on it you're of your father the devil now, if you stepped out your front yard and you saw a neighbor's kid across the street doing something over there, uh, you wouldn't walk over across the street and give him a whipping. I mean, if he's hurting somebody, you might yell at him, but if you, you wouldn't go over and discipline him. If he's out there and he's doing something that he just shouldn't be doing, you wouldn't walk over there and grab him and sit him down and start talking to him about what the Bible says, and now, son, i got to whip you now because, you know, you're not doing what's right. you get sued. You know why you'd get sued? Because he's not your child. You're not going to go correct somebody that's not your child. Well, if you're an unsaved person, you're not God's child. The wrath of God already abides on you. You're of your father, the devil. So he let the devil deal with you. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't put people in your world. Doesn't mean that he doesn't get people praying for it. Doesn't mean he doesn't try to get you to salvation. Fundamentally, he looks at your heart and he deals with you on the basis of that heart. Were you getting out there in a foxhole someplace saying, oh, God, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you the rest of my life? God says, yeah, right. I've heard that about 943 times today. Now, in a practical sense, again, the aspect of the last part, I want to look at that part again. He hears the prayer of the righteous. Now, prayer for you and me is the number one aspect of our walk with God. Christians who don't pray will never be very strong. Communication in your Christian life will be about your communication in prayer life. It's so simple, yet it's so vital. You know, when a marriage falls apart, bottom line, when you start digging down through all the layers, and it may take several years of layers, but when it all comes down to it, usually the problem is communication, the lack of it. When a husband and wife can't talk about anything or anything, it's over. It's just a matter of time. They wind up going through the motions. Why, wars are caused by a lack of communication and no talking. We had the Russian do a flyby on one of our ships this last week, put the world in the thither. And, you know, Russia not talking to anybody. She denounces everything, whatever the United States says. Uh, and, and that's how wars start putting a, I guarantee you, if, it, if a commander wouldn't have been a cool head and that plane would have come in, they had him on radar long before, he's on a, he's on an attack course on a ship, American ship in international waters, why, I tell you what, if I'd have been the captain, I'd have blown that guy out of the sky so fast, he wouldn't know what hit him, and I would have said, you know what, I am really sorry about that, we were testing our guns, and that sucker just happened to fly through the bullets when it went off, In war, you win a war by disabling and disrupting communications. War is over. General Schwarzkopf was one of my favorite generals. He was a general in the first Gulf War in the 90s. And Saddam Hussein had a formidable army and a Republican Guard. They weren't going to be a, a piece of cake to knock over. They were very well trained, very well entrenched. But when the war started, General Schwarzkopf did an amazing thing. The first 15 minutes, really, the war was over. The rest of it was a mop-up. Before, in the 15 minutes, he took out all the communication between the rear areas and the forward areas. They couldn't communicate. The, he didn't worry about the troops, didn't worry about the tanks, he didn't worry about the Republican Guard. He targeted, in the first 15 minutes, every communication center that they had. And they were blind as a bat. And then he carpet-bombed them for the next three weeks. With no communication from the rear areas to tell them where their eyes were, to give them any intel who was where or what was going on, they didn't have anything, and every day they got pounded. By the end of two or three weeks, they were waving white flags, and the Republican Guard was surrendering to CNN crews. In our own warfare of the believer, our struggles with the world and the flesh of the devil our first attack that we'll face will be against our prayer life. And when you surrender that, it's only a matter of time that the rest will go. And when it goes, the war is over. You've lost the battle. And then the devil will carpet bomb you with problem after problem after problem after problem. Bible says in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, it talks about putting on the whole armor of God and it gives you seven pieces of armor. And the last piece that he says and gives you, pulls it all together, is in verse 18, where he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Then he says over in 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Now, the verse, and you want to get this, the verse in Proverbs are so important because there will be times in our lives when we think God doesn't hear us. There will be times in your life and my life when you have a need and it's probably a legitimate need and you'll pray to God and the heavens are brass. We don't get the answer we need or maybe we want or maybe we don't get an answer at all. You know, as far as I am concerned, people judge real Christians by the wrong standard. The real test for what a child of God is really made of will be the determination when they don't get what they pray for. And so many times they start to blame God, they get mad at God, and they never fully understand anything about prayer. And for me, the real test is not when everything is going good in your life. Well, who couldn't hallelujah God then? The real test is when your cat dies, your dog gets run over, your car gets in a head on collision, your house burns down, and you got everything going wrong in your life. Can you say praise the Lord then? And it's times like these for me. I can't speak for you, but it's times like these for me that verses like this one in Proverbs is a gold mine. They become my rock, and they become my anchor. For it says to me, and it guarantees me, no matter what happens and what I'm going through, and what I want to feel and what I want to deal with, it simply says, God hears me. The fact that I'm not getting my answer only reinforces the fact it doesn't take away from me and God. It only reinforces the fact that he has something else for me to learn through this and I'm willing to go through it to learn it. But never, and I mean never, do I ever feel he's not hearing me. I get it. I'm established. I can't speak for you. I know that God turned his back on his own son on that cross. Do you know why? He turned his back on his son, so he would never have to turn his back on you and me. And the quicker you learn that, the better off you're gonna be. And it establishes you, like we talked about last week. Now, my Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 through 13. Whoa, what a great passage. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And these things. Have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the Son of God. Verse 14, the next verse. And this is the confidence that we have in Him. Hey, do you have confidence in Him this morning? That's the question. You we say, well, I'm saved. I didn't ask you that. Well, I got a King's James Bible. Congratulations Do you this morning as a child of God. Going through the issues and the struggles of life, do you have the confidence in Him? I have the confidence that if I ask anything according to His will, He hears me. It doesn't say that He doesn't. But I have a record. And this is the record, the word of God. The word of God, he wrote to me as a record. My confidence is in the record that God gave me about all things. I have a record of my eternal life. You can't talk me out of my salvation. I got a record of it. I got a record of my eternal security. I have a record of my prayer life. He hears me even when I don't think that he does. I know he does. I have a record of every question in life that I have to face. I have the record book that I can go to. And he wants to establish us in the way of God. And there lives, our confidence through the record that God gave us. I'd say probably the number one issue that defines God's people today It's simply a lack of confidence in the things of God. A lack of confidence in the ability of God to give you, through the book, all the answers of life. You get that confidence through a witness of God to you. Through the record that God has given you. Through your prayer life. Through your time you spend talking with him. That his witness with you through that book shows you that no matter what you go through, you have a record. It's oh, always been amazing to me. In life, everything we do, we get a record of it. I got four dogs. I got to have four dog licenses. I got to have a record of their shots so or I can't take them and drop them off anywhere. You bought a house, you got a record. It's called a deed. You buy a car, you get a record. It's called registration. You go to Walmart and buy some goofy little stuff. They give you a receipt caught a record. You're all sitting here this morning and you're all alive. But if you want to go to a college someplace and went into the administration and said, I want to go to school here, they'd say, you've got to have a birth certificate. Why? Prove you were born. Hello? <laughs> That's not good enough. You cannot do anything meaningful in life without a birth certificate. Do you hear me? And I'm telling you spiritually, you'll never do anything meaningful for God in your life until you have a record of your spiritual new birth certificate. Amen. You know who you are. You know what you believe. You know what you stand are. And no one will take that from you. And without that, you'll never do anything in life. Some of God's people, some of you here right now, if you had to have your birth certificate this afternoon, you'd be in a panic. You don't know where it's at. You think your mother's got it. (laughs) You think I put it here. Think I put it there. And you got to have it. It's afternoon by two o'clock, and you're running all over the place. And yet, some of you, as God's people, are the same way with your spiritual birth certificate. You do not have it. You do not know where it's at. You lost it. You put it away someplace. And the world just kicks you six ways from Sunday. Everything comes down on you. Every problem you have, you've got to run to somebody else. You do not have the ability to go into the Word of God and fix your problem from what Jesus said. you always got to be looking for somebody else. You know why? You've lost your birth certificate. It didn't say you lost your salvation, but you have misplaced the record. It's the reason why God's people have no power in their lives to do anything for Him. They lost the record of their salvation. That's why some of you can get talked out of your salvation or if somebody asked you to win them to Christ, you couldn't even do it. You've lost the record. And everything in your life and in my life will go back to the record that God gave us, that is the witness, that builds the confidence, that establishes us That we know that He hears us and no matter where He puts us and what we do. I have been in some of the most God-awful worst situations in my life that I could ever hope and never not hope to be in. But there was never a time in my life when I didn't know that God was right there with me, even when I could not see it. Because I have a confidence and I have a record. You got a lot of free stuff today. What you do with it from this point on is up to you. But as long as I'm here and God gives me breath, I will keep kicking out and spitting out the thing because I love you. You're my kids, no matter how old you are. And the job of a spiritual father, a pastor, is to make your path to learning the Bible easier than mine was. You may not do anything with it. You may just go your own way. That's between you and the Lord. My job is to make sure that you get it better, quicker, cleaner than I got it. Because we got some things to do for the Lord. And you don't have the 20, 30 years it took me to get it. So we'll get it to you quicker. But you better do something with it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we do love you. We pray now, Father, your blessings upon today and all that we endeavor to do for you. And Lord, these are good people. Proud of them, Lord. I love them so much. The Lord, I know that they want to do what's right. They want to be everything that you want them to be. Help us, Lord. Help us to be bound faithful in all that we do. And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. I'll give you about 10 minutes and I'll call you back and we'll get set up for to remember the 18th and Cherry group you're moving over. So when you come down here today, we'll see how many we got and we'll move you over there. You're dismissed.